0: The gospel today comes from the book of Saint Luke, the ninth chapter, beginning with the 28th verse. Now about eight wow, bad start. <laughs> now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of these things that they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. My dearest siblings, grace and peace to you from God in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. Uh, Two Fridays ago, uh, I had this this really cool moment that I wanted to share with you all, and it's going to sound very um, hippie-ish and weird, uh, but I'm going to share it anyways. It was Friday night, and I took Butters on a walk through town. Butters is our our 80-pound mutt. And uh, we walked over to, to the south end of town, and then we were coming back. And right when we got over here in front of Solvang School, I just kind of happened to look up at the sky. And it was a particularly clear night, and the moon wasn't very bright this night. So all of the stars seemed to just be shining. And because the moon wasn't so bright, there were so many of these stars out in the sky. And, you know, living in Solvang, I've seen this before. It's not the, the, the first time I've encountered the stars like this, but for some reason, when I looked up at the sky, I just felt like I was being hugged. Now, that sounds weird, right? Yet, I'm sure many of us can relate to this kind of experience, one where we just encounter the beauty of creation around us, and it's not that we're just seeing it objectively, but we're encountering it. We're embracing it and being embraced by it. And it's not a story I could describe intellectually. It's not a story that I could make sense of verbally. It's a story that could only be understood experientially because this was just an experience. I stood there for a while, just standing up, looking at the stars and every time I looked up, I couldn't help but feel like I was being hugged. And it wasn't just being hugged, I felt like it was divine, like it was God. This was something very special that was happening. And I just wanted to stay there in that moment, looking up at the stars, feeling like I was being hugged by God. And of course, I would look down at Butters, who would then look at me and think, come on, it's really cold outside. Can we go in? Like, we're done. And I just wanted to stay there looking at the sky. It was a beautiful moment. One that I shared that, as I said, I think all of us can relate to. All of us have had these experiences in our lives. And we all feel this way at times when we encounter something that is not just beautiful, but this thing that embraces us. And we want to just stay there in that moment, that beautiful moment of comfort, serenity, peace. Just stay there in that moment, in that beauty where time seems to pause. A moment that I think we share with these three disciples that Jesus took up onto the mountaintop. Mountaintops in antiquity were always special places. If you're reading any kind of an ancient text and they talk about being on a mountaintop, you always know that something divine is going to happen. It was on a mountaintop that Moses heard God speak from the burning bush. It was on the mountaintop that Moses received the commandments. It was on a mountaintop that Jesus gave his famous sermon. It was on a mountaintop that Jesus was crucified. Something about mountaintops and the divine resonated with people in antiquity. It's, it's in, on the mountaintops that people felt like they were the closest to the heavens, the closest to the divine. We all have this moment like the disciples did where they went on to the mountaintop and they encountered God. And just like all of us, they wanted to just stay in that moment, stay in that good place, that peace, that serenity i think christianity in many ways has become a faith centered on staying in these places that make us feel good christianity in many ways in our country has become a faith that has focused itself on just simply trying to make people feel good inside and stopping short right there i mean we have uh, companies that compile data all the time and as a pastor i look at these and and look at, at, at what churches are doing and, and what church finances are typically going to. And what we see today is, is a pattern. Churches today are spending exorbitant amounts of money on worship equipment. The biggest expenses by churches over the last 20 years has not been salaries, but has been on purchasing properties. And not properties for social services or anything that gives back to people in need, Properties primarily to develop bigger and more glamorous-looking worship spaces. Since 1915, and we can research this through history books, there has been a concerted effort to reshape Christian theology to make it more about personal salvation, an individual relationship with God, and a focus on the afterlife. And the reason this concerted effort has happened and the reason it has taken hold so well is because it makes us feel good. When we can go into a church that has the best worship equipment, it gives us that kind of divine experience. When we have a church that is constantly telling us, you did the right things, you are saved, it makes us feel good. When church talks about an afterlife experience, this special exclusive place that believers get to go to and we get to say, I'm one of them, it makes us feel good. Over the last hundred years or so, churches have reshaped their spaces and their theology almost to make people feel good. And that's it. And folks, this is not bad. It's not bad to feel good at church. Churches should feel good. We should come to worship and encounter music that moves us, that makes us feel good. Our faith, our relationship with God should make us feel good. I mean, Jesus intentionally brings Peter and James and John to this mountaintop to have this divine experience. This is not bad stuff. It's wonderful when a church can move us and make us feel good, and it should. But even though Jesus takes his disciples to this mountaintop experience, our gospel text today also points them to the cross as they encounter Jesus and Elijah and Moses they're talking with each other as they encounter the divine presence right there on that mountaintop Elijah and Moses and Jesus are talking about his crucifixion in Jerusalem our faith always needs to find a balance of those mountaintop experiences those moments when we encounter the divine when we feel like we are being embraced by God and Our faith needs to always point us to the cross, always needs to encourage us to go back down into the valleys to share God's love and compassion and justice with people who need it. If we ever become a church or a people who only stay at that mountaintop experience, who become centered on that divine, worshipful experience, then our faith becomes individualistic and it ignores what's happening down in the valleys, what's happening at the cross, the suffering that's taking place in the world. But also if our faith becomes centered only in those valley experiences, only at what's happening in the cross, then we could become overwhelmed by pain and, and the suffering that's happening in the world that could lead us to despair, the inability to move and help. So our faith always needs to find this balance of going to the mountaintops, going to to creation, looking up at the stars and the night sky, encountering God all around us, balanced with seeing Jesus at the cross and going down to the valleys and being God's presence in this world. And if we can find that balance, if we can truly do it, And this is each of you in your own individual lives. If you could find that balance for yourself, it does several things for us. One, if we can encounter God in those divine experiences, if we can allow ourselves to be moved by worship, to go out into creation, to experience God in a way where time just seems to stand still, if we can do that, it fills us up and it carries us forward. It helps us realize that in those moments when we find ourselves at the cross, that God has not abandoned us, that God is right there with us. If God can be with us in the mountaintops, then God is surely with us at the cross. And if that experience can fill us up and bring us to the cross, folks, this is where we discover our connection to people. We don't connect with people at the mountaintop. That's just for us and God. That's where we have our own moment. Like me standing out on the corner by myself at night with the dog staring up at the sky. Those mountaintop experiences, those are for us with God, our moment with God, our space with God, feeling God, being filled and nourished by that divine energy. But our connection with other people, that happens at the cross. That happens when we meet others at Jesus' feet. That's when we meet people in their struggle and realize that their struggle is also our struggle. That's where we experience our unity with people who are diverse, realizing that we are all human beings. We are all children of God. We are all united in our compassion, in our coming together to care for each other, to love each other. That happens at the cross, and we need both of these moments. We need those mountaintop experiences, and we need that cross because this is what brings us to Together as people. This is where we discover that we are truly one world, all sharing God's Spirit, God's love, called to care for each other. As I think of this encounter at the cross, this place where we meet our fellow siblings in this world. It reminds me of a story by Johann Hari in his book, Lost Connections, which by the way is on Theocart. I reference it all the time. You really should read it, it's a good one. But in his book, Lost Connections, Johann Hari tells a story of Koti Berlin. And has anyone ever heard of Koti Berlin? Two people, they read Lost Connections, that's why they've heard about it. Uh, Koti is a housing project in Berlin and during, uh, right after World War II, when the Berlin Wall went up, Koti was on the west side of the Berlin Wall, but it was right up against the wall. And because it was so close to the wall and because there was always this fear that the Russians were going to attack from that side, this project was completely neglected by the German government. It was owned by, by some housing company, but they did nothing to take care of it. It became dilapidated as time went on, and it became a place where people who weren't really accepted in German society went to live. And it became a very diverse place of people. There were a lot of Turkish Muslims who had come over to Germany on work programs. There were a lot of conservatives, communists. There were new uh, hip alternative punk youth. The gay community, which wasn't uh, accepted in Berlin at that time, had developed in Kotti Berlin. And it was a place of the young and the old alike. Yet, despite that diversity, it was a place that was known for crime. And for most part, people didn't talk to each other. They kept their eyes to the ground when they walked by one another. Everyone felt isolated in this housing project. But then something happened. The wall came down. And when the wall came down, Cote became prime real estate. New housing people came and bought up this project and their their hope was to get everybody out so that they could tear it down and rebuild it into bougie apartments. And the way to do that was to start evicting people. And one by one, people started getting evicted from their apartments. First, they jacked up the rent and then they started telling them you were getting out. And slowly people were leaving, but these were people who were on very low incomes. They had nowhere to go. They couldn't afford to go to new apartments. They were lost. And finally, one woman, an old Turkish Muslim woman, got her eviction notice and she did something crazy. On her window in this Koti apartment project, she put up a sign that said, in one week, I'm going to take my life. This a woman who couldn't work. She couldn't do anything if she got evicted from her home she was going to be homeless. And so she decided the best thing to do was to just take her life. And she put the sign up on the window because she didn't want anyone to be surprised when it happened. She wasn't looking for sympathy, she just wanted to let people know. And when she put that sign up, her neighbors who had never spoken to her before, never talked to her when they passed her on the street, they came over and knocked on the door, started checking in. And when she explained why she was going to do what she was going to do, they realized that they had the same struggle They couldn't afford their rent. They were going to be evicted as well. And then these neighbors started talking to each other. And and as they started talking, they realized that they all had this thing in common. They were being forced from their homes, homes that they had lived in for decades, homes that because uh, the housing people who owned it, because the government were not fixing it, they had repaired themselves this place that they raised their families in. They suddenly realized that they were united in this struggle, so they decided to do something bold. They decided to create a protest. First, it was just to stop this, this uh, Turkish Muslim woman named Nuria from being evicted. But then when they realized that they all had this thing in common, this protest came about all of them not wanting to be evicted from this place that they had lived in for so long. There was a street that went right past the projects. It was a main street in Berlin, and so they created this big giant uh, structure that they could block traffic in as they protested. They started writing to their elected leaders. They started getting the news involved more and more and more. They were worried that the police were gonna come in the middle of the night and tear the structure down and force them out of their houses, so they decided to work in shifts through the night, making sure that if if the police or anybody came, that they could alert the neighbors and everybody could come out onto the street. And they did this for an entire year, trying to get the Koti government, or the Berlin government, to just create a rent freeze and let them live in the place that they had lived for decades. But this isn't just about the protest that happened, it's about what happened with the people who were protesting people who had no reason to speak to each other, people who traditionally did not like each other, started working in shifts during this protest at night. You had traditional Muslim people and gay people working in shifts with each other. You had conservatives and communists working in shifts together. You had old people and young people working in shifts together. He tells one story about a a Turkish boy whose family had come over from Turkey, they were a Muslim family. He was born and raised in this housing project. But he was doing really bad at school, he was about to get expelled, and he had a shift at night with an old retired teacher. And as they would sit there night after night, they finally started talking and this boy opened up and started talking about the struggles he was having at school, talking about how he was about to be expelled. And this grumpy old man who didn't like kids said, well, tomorrow night, why don't you bring your laptop and we'll work at it? And so he did. And this happened night after night after night. Suddenly the kid wasn't in trouble at school anymore. His grades had picked up. He was in no danger of being expelled. And this old man and this young kid, they became friends with one another. This is one of many stories that happened in KOTI Berlin during this time. And after a year, they won. Berlin decided to pass a rent freeze for the KOTI projects. They didn't do this for any other project in Berlin, it was just for KOTI, because the people had come together for an entire year and supported each other. One woman remarked after it was over that they didn't just gain lower rent, they didn't just gain affordable housing, they had realized how many beautiful people lived around them, people that they could now call neighbors. This Turkish kid who had been helped out with this school by the old man, he was quoted on the news as saying, I can see through another's eyes and that's a new thing for me. We're like a family. This was a community of people who had no reason to trust each other, to like each other, Yet they came together in compassion and united need and they helped each other. And when it was over, when they had won, when they had succeeded, they didn't just dissipate. What was left was this incredible, meaningful community. I've I've read Lost Connections a few times and I've heard the story about Cote Projects many times. And every time I do, I think to myself, that's heaven. That right there. That's the heaven that the Bible talks about. That's the heaven that God wants us to experience. It's not this place that we go to after we die. It's when we as people, diverse people, created differently than one another, come together in our shared struggle and in our shared love and become a family. Look, we need those mountaintop experiences. I don't ever wanna take us away from that. I don't ever wanna take us away from worship being a meaningful experience. But we need our mountaintop experiences to help us face the cross, to help us face the people we meet at Jesus' feet, because it's in those spaces that heaven breaks through into our world. Amen.